Teenagers, I'm Matt Rather. Ryan Sheely is away doing field work, studying fucking teenagers in the wild. Not actually fucking the teenagers, because that would be unethical and would never pass the Human Subjects Committee, but he is stalking the fucking teenager. Uh, so I am very glad to have with me a special guest in her second return visit, guest uh, uh, TFTR Cognac, uh, whose Twitter is like Cognac. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm very excited. I, I, I'm glad you're here. I, I'm sad, though, that Ryan is gone. I, I, I really appreciate his presence. I, I mean, I just I, I honor him. I really do him honor and uh, really validate his presence as a, as a friend and as a fellow podcaster. And and uh, I miss him. And uh, but but it's wonderful also uh, to have to have you and also kind of sweet to savor the uh, the the bittersweet feeling of missing Ryan, because it only makes me realize how much I love him to uh, have this pang uh, in in my heart as I have now, you know. Oh, no, completely. Absence <laughs> makes the heart grow fonder. I mean, my, my, you know, the absence can only really recharge the fondness, which is sort of like a cell phone battery that <laughs> fades away and dies and needs constant recharging. Abs- absolutely. Yeah, it's like, uh, it's a, you know, and it's like his absence, yeah, is like the white apple power brick of, uh, you know, of my feelings that you plug the USB cord of metaphor into and recharges the, the uh, the iPhone of of friendship. I, I you know I can only imagine that when he does return, it won't be very long before I wish that he's gone again, so that I can once again realize how much I appreciate him. Exactly. I mean, much like the iPhone, I send him out every five hours or so, <laughs> so that I can recharge my fondness. <laughs> And I can feel again that desire to to be near him. Um, no, but in all honesty, he is he is a wonderful person whose thoughts uh, are just you know just incomparable, and he's the most articulate, intelligent person ever, ever, ever. And he makes my life much better. I, so yes, I miss him as well. My, my, me too. Um, <laughs> So uh well great I'm I'm glad that we've I'm glad that we've established that but I you know I just wanted to give you uh I'm glad you're back because I wanted to give you a chance to air a grievance um I'm looking here at your your Twitter feed uh on the 29th of of March and you you uh, tweeted at TFT podcast that you don't agree uh don't agree with your take on the Hunger Games what about that crucial scene that took place at the Capitol Mall Right and so I think I think that was a really garbled and misplaced joke, but I do I agree with were, that I sentiment. Were, <laughs> I thought you were serious. I, I was I was uh, worried, you know, that we defended you or something. No, no, no. I, you know, I, I. But then the more I thought about, it, the more I actually did come to disagree. I, you know, <laughs> I, so of course, of course, I did actually listen to the show, but uh, in speaking to Ryan uh, and got the gist of what the argument was, I, you know, I agree. I, I think the, um, 
I think adolescence is a is like a sociological or kind of I don't know how else to describe it. It's like a sociological phenomenon. It doesn't really exist in Panem and in the world of Panem. You know, they're all striving and working, and you know, they have a lot more in common, at least in District Twelve, with you know the kind of the farmer children of yore, you know, yeah, who to, are to enter the economy, you don't need this lengthy period of of sort of education to enter their economy. You just need to be able to swing a pickaxe. Right, right. And they enter the economy much more quickly. They probably get married more you know they probably are reproducing pretty quickly and pretty young. I I, I don't know. I mean I think so. Um but then again, I think the whole series of books it is a young adult novel, and I think it's very cognizant of that. And the the whole like Hunger Games world and the arena and the humiliation and terror is all this is kind of a large metaphor. The whole thing is like a, a metaphor for adolescence sure. and the humiliation and the sexual. And there's a lot of like sexual embarrassment and. Sure. You know, having to having to be like sexual or sexualized and dealing with that really uncomfortably, dealing with people really uncomfortably. You know, the whole thing is there's a lot, I think, adolescent angst. Sure. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's. I don't really know a lot about adolescence. I don't know whether that's <laughs> adolescent angst is like a is part of the sociological phenomenon or if it's there's like a real psychological state in which adolescent, you know, or yeah, I, I really you don't can know do th- how they yeah, tie together. Sure. I mean, you can do a thought experiment that is like, you know, once you once you start working on the farm and you're, you know, 14 and you're married, right? Like uh cuz I don't know, in traditional societies the the coming of age ceremony is right when the equipment starts working, you know. Right. And so okay, so you're you're married off and you're, you know, not too far away from from starting a family. You you don't really have time to worry about, you know, I don't know whether whether um uh, Cato from District One uh, likes you. You know what I mean, or how dreamy he looks with his blonde hair when the light hits it just so. You know what I mean? Because you have a farm. You have a farm to run. Uh, right. Right. Is, yeah. So, like, in at least in my thought experiment, what I'm proposing is that adolescent angst is sort of a, a, a function of free time. You know. It is, but then what's kind of curious is, in some ways, then the capital create like forces onto this district this adolescence, sure. right? Because if they, them, yeah, yeah. By forcing them into the Hunger Games and into the arena, because I mean, it's not doesn't it's not it's pretty disruptive. If you are expected to like you know at fourteen, you're coming of age, you're expected to have a kid, you're entering the economy full force, you know, to then be subject for like five more years to being killed, you know, or being it, it just it, that is kind of disruptive in some ways. Oh, right, the oh, capital sort of forces this adolescence onto the these poorer districts, in which that's not really how the economy is working. That's and there's really not interesting. That's something I hadn't thought of before. Is uh, that what you're saying is that the period of eligibility for the Hunger Games corresponds with your teenage years, and I think it ends when you're 18. So it ends with what we think of as majority, and so right. it's it's um, yeah. 
I oh I had not thought of that that the the eligibility period is the kind of adolescent period and then right and then the um, the whole Hunger Games themselves are this kind of grotesque at least especially especially in the first book in the second book more stuff is going on but like with the resistance and stuff like that but in the first book um, the uh, in the first book the games are clearly I mean with the the clickishness and not knowing who your friends and your allies are uh, the, the idea of sort of being watched you know that kind of is is common to to teenagers Adel- of, yeah. Yeah, sort of feeling monitored uh, in this case you know by the viewing public or you know by the, the bad grown ups right like all, all those things are sort of metaphors for uh, and, you know, and each of the deaths is a kind of metaphorical death. You know, it could be like an alpha girl, sort of queen bee, mean girls kind of death. Uh, it just happens to be that uh, it just happens to be that um, Glimmer is going to use her knife to, like, carve Heath Ledger-esque uh, Joker scars into your mouth uh, sadistically before she kills you. That was actually sort of the most sadistic uh, to me of the killings at least the way it's portrayed in the book right because it's like not not only am i going to cut you up but i i'm going to enjoy it you know i'm going to toy with you a little by cutting you up before i uh before i i finish you off yeah no i i mean some of the other children are, are real sociopaths for sure <laughs> they they are it's it's kind of I don't know. it's yeah no i mean i don't know it, it's making me think about the books again about how you know, I don't know. I, I, you know, I like the books for this reason, but it also seems kind of like uh, kind of weak in some ways. Thinking about this is really off track. Uh, just you know, Candace gets away like with her moral superiority in the books by like kind of avoiding killing people, but at the same time, I mean, she still does things like deprive people of food and like. She still does all these kinds of like things that would probably not be kosher in like the trolley problem. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, you know. But because she doesn't actively like stab someone, it's like except in a defensive manner, right? Because I guess she kills people defensively. She kills um, them defensively, and she kills. Uh, she kills the male tribute from District Two as he spears Rue. Right. 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 Which is not strictly speaking defensive, I guess, because she, you know, he's killing Rue, not her. But I guess it's defensive of her team, I, right? Sure. Right. I guess you're right. I guess that wasn't technically, that probably isn't completely defensive. Maybe when it went past like a self defense law. Um, but that's, I mean, isn't that, I mean, that's sort of, the, that's something that Merlin Mann has called the, the sort of er cognitive bias, right? That, and uh, teenagers share it, I think, as much as any of us do, which is that, like, you're an asshole for doing what you do, but I have my reasons, you know? And, and I, and I think that there's this like elaborate sort of justifying and she sort of, she sort of agonizes over her justifications and like, can she live with the kind of, you know, the kind of person that she's become? And that's, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm just a sociopath myself, but to me, that was like, that was a a phenomenon of adolescence more than it is of, uh, of my adult life where I worried about the kind of person that, that I was becoming and like, can I, can I wear these clothes? You know what I mean? Can I rip my jeans just so? Can I wear this, you know, plaid button down shirt uh, because of, it, of the kind of person it makes me because of the sort of group that it allies me with? Can I like this music? Uh, you know what I mean? Do I, can I listen to Counting Crows because I really like that kind of coffee house rock sound or do I just have to listen to like Mud Honey over and over and over and over because, uh, you know, my my alternative friends won't uh, won't like me if I don't. 
Oh no, completely. I it actually it's like it just reminds me of this like true story from my adolescence. I like at around thirteen, I like really grew to like the Clash a lot. Uh-huh. And at that up until that point, I was very close to this girl in middle school who who liked um, Nine Inch Nails and Radiohead and uh-huh. David Bowie and. I don't know what it was about the clash that really like she really disapproved of, but she really said to me, like she really said, you know, you've become everything that I'm against that we hate. You've that become I hate. What we hate. Like, yeah. She really told me that about the clash because I like the clash that I stood for everything she was against. And so then we didn't speak again and we didn't speak again. I don't think we spoke again for years, except briefly on Facebook to be like, Hey, what happened to you? And, but that really was the end of our friendship. And it was really, I mean, I don't know. Now I think it's like, obviously it wasn't really about the clash, but I feel like what you're saying resonates with that memory. And as far as Katniss, I I think I completely agree with you in some ways though, isn't that like that's what it it's the adolescence and that that kind of trait of adolescence, you know, that 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 makes her the good revolutionary and makes all those young people kind of good revolutionaries, because maybe the other adults in the life are, you know, as a result of being adult, have, you know, have not agonized over their decisions so much. And what it you know, what the what like the environment, like geopolitical environment and and, cons- you know, accepting it and, you know, not pushing against it means about them. And maybe it's that sort of extreme. What was it called again that uh, Merlin Mann calls it? The yeah, cognitive. Yeah, the cog- the cognitive bias of uh uh, the cognitive bias of self-justification, right? That, you know, you're, you're an asshole, but I, I have my reasons, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that helps them. I think that helps them kind of, if not for that stance, I don't think they would, you know, become the sort of revolutionaries they become, right? Because they are sitting, they are like constantly trying to justify, you know, they're, justify they're what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're agonizing over their actions and what kind of what it says, what it says about them as though your life were a kind of art project, you know, we're, we're a kind of school art project that that had to have uh, that had to have a meaning. And and you know what I mean? The more I'm an adult, it, the more it's just like, oh, come on, daddy just got to get paid, you know, and right. like, let's not you can't worry about you can't necessarily. And this is the, the tragedy of like modern society. This is why we're, you know, I don't know, exploiting uh, the labor and etc resources of developing countries because like uh, you, you can't at a certain point like food just has to get on the table and you can't worry about where it comes from and that you know what i mean and that's that sort of complacency that's that sort of imperialistic complacency i guess i'm a i'm a citizen of the capital right yeah i i exactly and i guess all adults are right <laughs> everyone who becomes an adult is because they right because they have settled into that complacency and but the katnesses and the gales and the the teenagers of of the panem universe right yeah don't adults, don't feel that way right because adults, they're still uh, there because they're, they're still, yeah, they're still there. That's why they're good ideological revolutionaries. To get, yeah, exactly. To get, that was my point, right? Yeah, that's get, what makes them revolutionaries. You know, to get uh, adults to uh, start a revolution, you got to fuck with their paycheck, right? Like adults become economic revolutionaries, right? As in, right. As in, I suppose the American Revolution. And then I guess someone like Hamish, like, can kind of come to them at an ideological place more because he lived through the horror of the Hunger Games, right. and in some ways, he just never has. He's never left the arena, yeah. Right? He's never left. He's you like, know that. 
He's never left all the justifications he had to make in his time in the arena, and he's still there right. with them he's, as a teenager. He's, he's like still- Matthew McConaughey in uh, in Dazed and Confused, right? Saying, you know, uh, high school <laughs> girls, you get older, yeah. they stay the same age. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm glad we were able to to uh, to sort that out. Um, maybe we should move on to the uh, maybe we should move on to the latest Gossip Girl. Uh, what I like to call the Chuck has AIDS episode. Right, right. Um, I thought right. I really... the awesome Hep C. <laughs> the, the, the episode, <laughs> if you will. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I actually thought when they were like, "Oh, he was, uh, you know, he was, um, he was gay." Oh, and by the way, this is the second Bass Man uh, to have admitted to a gay phase, or or to not even admitted to, because that implies a certain level of of guilt. Uh, or apology to to have just sort of unapologetically owned up to his gay face in in uh, in uh, Jack's case, what at boarding school? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Does he mm-hmm. look different? Does Jack look different? Because I was watching it with my girlfriend, and she said, um, she said oh, that looks like a different actor. It's he looks so different, and I I don't think it was a different no, actor. No, it was the same actor. He, he looked. He looked thin, he's very right? tan. Yeah, maybe he's starting to waste away on account of the Hep C. <laughs> Yeah, I, it, yeah, you know the way they reacted to the Hep C. I mean, like it's no big deal. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, you know, it's it's not chlamydia. Right. You won't take an and I just, uh, I don't know. I just it, they seem. I, his liver's probably already. Doesn't Hep C fuck with your liver? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. This is between this, the alcohol and the yeah. Hep C, His liver is so shot. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no. He doesn't look different to me, though. He looks... I just think he's very tan. He was extremely tan in this episode. He's, like, orange. Yeah, and I think he is thinner. I think he... Like you said, the hep C is making him waste away. (laughs) It's making him waste away, which doesn't make any sense given given that it's just an infection of the liver and that a lot of people are, like, asymptomatic. Uh, Right, right. (laughs) So, um... Well, okay, so Jack is Jack is back, and, and the, the mystery with that, do you have a prediction? Do you think it's Bart on the phone, or is it Mom? It's Mom, and it's totally Elizabeth Hurley. Elizabeth Hurley is Chuck's mom. <laughs> That's what it is. That's, you know... No, mom, uh, mom, is, mom is Mom. We met Mom already. Do you think no, that's not that's fake. I think that's fake Mom. Oh, I, fake? I don't okay. know. Yeah, Ryan put the... I, I shouldn't take credit for this idea. Ryan put it forward, but I think it's totally right. Um, I, I, I would love to see if this is how it plays out exactly. Um, yeah, I think... Remember there was an episode where there was a picture of Elizabeth Hurley and some sort of vague, swinging 60s oh, right, yeah, outfit? Yeah. You know, there's some sort of implication that, that Chuck's dad had been with Elizabeth Hurley's character. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think there was um, also a shot where Jack called Elizabeth Hurley, or she was around the night of the accident. Yeah. So I, I really do think there, it's like all a setup for Elizabeth Hurley as Chuck's mom. Sure. There's and his, his real mom, yeah. It's not that other woman. I think that other woman is maybe, I don't know. I don't know what she is. She's She's something else. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Elizabeth Hurley definitely involved with uh, with Bart Bass. One speculation I read on the internet was that Bart Bass is actually coming back. What? That he never died? Yeah, yeah, yeah that, his, <laughs> what? that his death is is fake. Like, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, 
Um, I would love to see. I, I just, I, you know, that's the problem with Gossip Girl is that it, it, it goes so <laughs> crazy or has the potential to be so crazy and then it doesn't commit fully to its craziness. Yeah. Well, I would love to see that. I would love to see Bart Bass come back. Well, that's, I mean, for a teen soap, like, that's a, that's a real soap opera move. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That level of... Uh, yeah, the dead coming back for sure. Yeah, of selling out your own narrative premise, right? Like, and yeah, it would be uh, it would be great if they uh, if they managed to um, to pull that off uh, successfully without it then being like, oh, actually, it was another con artist or right. like it's another imposter. Uh, yeah, Bart Bass was all Bart Bass was always an imposter. It was a kind of Truman Show thing to see if you know an actor could raise a baby. Right, exactly. He did um, miserably. <laughs> so I, I, so I thought the the sort of B story, or maybe it was even the A story. I don't know what the A story was. If it was, I guess it was the inheritance stuff. And Chuck and Dan, uh, Chuck and Dan's inception to Bone uh, was the uh, was the B story, um, but uh, not Chuck and Dan. Like <laughs> gay face is back. <laughs> <laughs> no one's interested in Blair <laughs> at all. Well, that's uh, uh, we've talked. Yeah, on the I show, think that was the B story. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> we've talked on the show about homosociality and the idea that um, uh, the idea that a lot in literature, a lot of these sort of male-female relationships are actually just uh, the the female is an interface for the men to. Uh, uh, to sort of get together each other, and the, the like. The the canonical example of this is in Paradise Lost. Eve is sort of an interface for Adam to have a relationship with God. It's the two men. It's the kind of the romance of the two men that's important, and the woman is just there to I don't know to what to beat the Hayes Code or something like. Uh, uh, yeah, Dan and Dan and Chuck's um, like long uh, smoldering homosocial attraction is. Um, yeah, it comes to fruition in this episode. No, I dance. And you know, so the thing I thought I thought that there was a problem with tone, right? In the Dan and Blair uh in the Dan and Blair thing, right? It seemed slapstick to me. And and uh, though Gossip Girl is sort of tongue in cheek at the level of at the level of reference or at the level of the writing, like the characters within the world always take everything extremely seriously i mean they're very solemn about the, themselves and their problems and like the the sort of we can't you know we can't find a place to bone is uh i guess until they do it you know until they do it in public like the world is their place to bone you know um mm-hmm. but they can't uh, uh they can't do it I, it was a little bit i don't know it was a little bit slapstick it was a little bit out of keeping with the tone uh you know, I don't know. What did you What did you think of of, of Dan and Blair and their their uh, their problems boning? Yeah, no, I, I I see what you mean about the tone. I, I agree with you. That was kind of. I mean, the whole thing was sort of meant for for anemic laughing. I don't know. It wasn't. It was. Yeah. It it was kind of slapstick. I I but then and even just the the way they took it seriously was played for laughs. The way they both drank excessively and right. then awkwardly met again and you know the 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 way they confided in other people and it's actually you know what it is i think it's against tone for blair 
maybe or sure. well, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Or like it's it's like typical of the show to make light of. Well, maybe not. I don't know. Now I'm contradicting myself. Uh, I think Blair's like sort of love issues are taken more seriously than Dan's sometimes. Or, but then again, I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of symmetry in though how they treated them afterwards, and like the way they were both kind of being comic. And I agree that the it was a little off. I, I can't really place my finger on why, but. It wasn't hilarious. No, yeah. It, it, it wasn't totally, really entertaining. It failed, it failed to be hilarious. It uh, failed to be hilarious. And, you know, and, and then also it, it was easily resolved. Uh, I don't know why. Yeah, all I, it I took was a, yeah, all it took was a bottle of vodka and a stopped elevator, right? Right. And which would probably make their sex much worse. Really, yeah, if, if they're both that drunk, I, I don't know. I, I don't. I, I don't understand why people like talk about drunk sex being fun. I've never had fun having drunk sex. It's always awful. <laughs> it's always awful. I mean, it's just like it's like not. Me- you're not meant to have sex drunk. You know, yeah, it's, sure. It's unhealthy. You're, it's like no one is is like lubricated or happy, and you're tired. It doesn't. I don't understand it, but whatever. Here's what I wish. I wish that I wish that all foreplay could be drunk, and that you could hit instant sobriety. Uh, you know, the second the the actual main event begins. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, exactly. Because you need sobriety for the main event, and maybe you need to be a little drunk to sort of have the to ease in to like have to the, ease into the repartee and the right the confidence to have your social inhibitions right like uh, you know I don't know sort of minimized yeah by the uh, um, uh, by the the uh, 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 alcohol right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, exactly. But so now, now they're I mean now they're boning. Now they're happily boning. They bone in a they bone in a thing. I I mean I thought the point of that last shot of them ducking behind the fence and closing it, you know, in the alley next to the bar. By the way, not in an, an alley next to a bar in New York, not a sexy spot to bone. No, not at all. Not at all. I don't know why. I mean, unless you like rats. I mean, <laughs> I don't know the smell of like the days old smell of uh, vomit, right? Or you want? Or yeah, exactly. Or you want to get mugged? I, <laughs> I really, I just don't. No, not sexy, not sexy at all. But yeah, I think you're right that like I guess the tone for how they're approaching their relationship is different from the way Chuck and Blair was such a serious relationship. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Even even their sex was extremely serious. Right. And and even, like whether it was serious in its like high emotional intensity or serious in its um, in its what in its like admirable commitment to fetishism. Uh, yes, it, it, <laughs> right. It was very it was very serious, uh, sol- uh, solemn almost. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, and and um, and Dan and Blair are having more of a bouncy good time, right? Right, yeah, there are a lot more. I mean, we're not even once they were having good sex, we weren't even. I mean, the camera just didn't pan in on their sexiness in the same way. Like even in the elevator, which was supposed to be the hot sex moment, it just it it, it just wasn't the same as the way they 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 framed and treated the Chuck Blair sex. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I almost feel like they you know there's like more confidence in the inherent hotness of Chuck and. Chuck and Blair having sex than Dan. Like, I guess Dan's always been kind of a goofy comic figure, and maybe they have a hard time. I, I don't know. It's it's almost like they don't believe in 
the inherent sexiness of Penn Bagley or something. <laughs> which I think is kind of, I mean, it's, it's yeah, that's I think not there's a bad something that's, yeah, it's not a bad call. They're probably right about that. He's not but, yet. He doesn't have the smoldery, you know, kind of what bad boy uh, seriousness that, that, um, that even, uh, that even Nate has, right? No, no, he doesn't. No, yeah, no, it's it's kind of funny though. Actually, when I think about it though, of like thinking of speaking of the sort of a uh, homos. I mean, uh, of the three men, I feel like Dan Humphrey comes like it seems the most convincingly like heterosexual of the three of them in his like uh, persona. <laughs> I don't know. Well, right but, in his yeah, in his kind of careless inattention to personal grooming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, his careless inattention to personal grooming and his sort of bumbling. Yeah, all that awkwardness actually seems quite heterosexual to me. So I don't know. Um, anyway, but yeah, I I don't know. I agree with you that just the the way they're treating their romance is quite different. It's very bouncy, good time. It's it's not that solemn. It's gonna be there's gonna be more hilarity, I guess, in the way they progress. Which it makes me think that they don't really want it to continue very long. So I don't know if it's not the big solemn relationship of the series. You know, it's not where the gravity is. Yeah, I, you know, there was an interview with with like the showrunner of Gossip Girl, uh, and it it um, they, there were some. It, it was in the Hollywood Reporter where I read it on their their entertainment blog, which I read. At, I mean, I guess the whole thing is an entertainment blog, but in their. Uh, <laughs> in their TV blog, uh, which I read and it's, um, Oh, it, it was one of these, uh, Oh, with, with Dan and Blair, you'll have to see what happens in the finale. Something's, <laughs> something's going to take place and everything will be different. After For at least three episodes. <laughs> Ten. Yeah. They're going to have Rufus and Lily are going to have another secret love child. Oh God. Right. That everyone will forget about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Within yeah, within six episodes. Um, so I guess maybe we should talk about the uh, we we should talk about the big um, uh, the big uh, plot, which is the uh, Lola IV uh, inheritance plot. And uh, it's good that, it's good that you're back for this because you sort of delved into you know some of the legalities uh, in uh, in the the episode that you recorded with Ryan. I am. Um, I think that there's a, a fundamental confusion sort of here, and it's it's uh, it's between what I'm going to call the natural order, the the relationship of things as they are, um, with the sort of substantive content of things, and what I'm going to call the symbolic order. Uh, that is to say, the the relationship of ideas that we try to map onto the relationship of things as they are. And there are two instances of the two instances of this that I want to point out. One uh, is that. At the very at the very end at the party at the climactic party right the um, uh, Lola uh, I'm gonna call her Lola the the real Charlie Rose I'm gonna call her Lola for ease of distinguishing her um, Lola is like presented with a choice to reveal what she saw. Uh, uh, Stephen Baldwin and and uh, Ivy talking about in the lobby when she was concealed behind a, what a plant or a, a rack of purchases from Bergdorf Goodman or something like that. That's what you're right. Yeah. Um, that uh, that they were talking that they were talking about the bribe or the fee for for uh, fee for service. Um, 
Oh, by the way, and Lola asks Nate, she says uh, earlier in the episode, she says, I have a rich person question for you. And, and I think that everyone who watches Gossip Girl will admit that it is like being a rich person involves a skill set, you know, that not everybody has. And it turns <laughs> out that Nate is a, sort of an expert on wills and trusts, right? <laughs> right. Like, you know, <laughs> that, that he understands the like the fiduciary responsibility of a trustee and like what kinds of uh, remuneration like a trustee can't uh, uh, can't accept and and still or not a trustee and an executor of a of an estate like a and still can't uh, can't do so you know yeah I guess there are rich people questions and and a set of rich people skills um, and Lola will have to learn them if she sort of metaphorically joins the family and so this decision at the end in the ball at the ball right is like put the charity ball is put to her like uh are you going to join the family by revealing um revealing this information uh so that we can get ivy or aren't you you know are you going to are are you going to sort of prove that you're one of us by aligning your interests with ours uh or aren't you? Are you going to join the family? And and the thing is, like, she is in the family as a matter of the natural order. You know, she's related to these people by blood. She's a cousin, right? Or, or a niece or a nephew or, you know, a niece or uh, uh, whatever. But joining the family is not just limited to that. You know, there's, a, um, there's an extra symbolic step that she has to take of kind of submitting to the collective will of this aristocratic social order of the Upper East Side that she... Uh, uh, that's required of her a kind of show a, a show of submission sort of before she really is is uh, a member of the family um, uh, totally right and that 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 those things are those things are uh, aligned in that case being a member of the family and being a member of the ca- family but they're not aligned um, in the the plot with Ivy so the Ivy the Ivy thing being fought uh, is is being fought in a way that I think uh, confuses the the natural order with the um with the symbolic order or put another way confuses the procedural uh with the substantive is the issue here right with with ivy is the issue fairness or is it legality right because it seems perfectly legal that is to say Cece, you know left her the bulk of her estate to uh, Ivy Dickens. We know who Ivy Dickens is. It's not. It's not the plot that you were predicting, where uh, where it's like, oh, which Charlie Rhodes did she mean, or which Charlie yeah, Rhodes right. is the real one? Uh, which I guess is a thing in estates, right? Like that happens. That is I a guess. thing. Yeah, that happens from yeah. time to time. It's it's not that. It's actually we know exactly who she meant to uh, to leave it to, and it seems kind of like an open and shut case. Uh, you know, because the 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 will was you know done correctly. You know, she wasn't under duress. I mean, at least that doesn't seem to be. Um, right. That doesn't seem to be an issue. And like, even the diminished capacity argument is not really being brought up, right? No, they even they even like try to push it out completely. It's like, well, she was lucid up until her death, and yeah. you know, and I I don't think they've put anything there. Well, as like a separate point, I mean, I wonder, I wonder if they would still have if they wanted to beat that dead horse, which I do think they're trying to make a dead. You know, they're trying to really shut that out as a yeah. possibility. I mean, it is weird. I do think it seemed like Ivy isolated the grandma a little, or it, it was kind of there was a strange lack of contact, tech, uh, lack of contact with the rest of the family. But again, I you know, if she was lucid, I, I think it's like kind of a weak. 
still like a weak avenue to pursue that somehow the the kind of isolating her might have been the result of some sort of, you know, influence or overtaking her will. But I digress. Anyway, yeah, I back, in the, day, thinking, well, back yes. in the day, like back in the day, it seemed like I mean, and in, while Ivy was taking care of uh, uh, of Cece, like after she ran out from the hospital after the the accident where uh, Bart Bass came back from the dead and donated blood to save Chuck's life. Uh, right. The, uh, and Chuck uh, subsequently got AIDS. The uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. The uh, uh, it's it seemed like you know uh, at least one thing that Ivy has claimed is that she was trying to reconcile Cece with the family, but Cece just didn't want them to see her in a weakened state. Right. It was right, and that that was really the issue, not uh, not Ivy sort of isolating her. Okay. So as, as a legal matter, um, it seems like an open and shut shut case but the the argument that they're making and and so there's a little twist here right the argument that they're making is that this is somehow morally wrong right that ivy somehow doesn't deserve to uh doesn't deserve to benefit uh from cc's will like this but you see they're rather than making the case they're trying to trip her up in illegality right so there's this there's this confusion there's this slippage i think between the uh between the substantive order um which is, uh, uh, you know, which has to do with what is fair, what is right, and the the symbolic order um, or the procedural order, which has to do with what is legal and what comports with, um, you know, what comports with the sort of procedural norms of of executing an estate like this. And actually, but by the way. What's the basis of our practice for honoring wills anyway? You know what I mean? Like, why does it, why, why, why on earth should a person's interest in his own property outlast his death? You know, you're not, you're not, you're dead. You know, you're gone. That's it. You're, uh, Cece's, you know, Cece's gone. Like, as a matter of fairness, you know, why not give everything equally to the, uh, uh, this is like this is the life as art project again model, you know, like, uh, <laughs> you know, you make you can make a grand gesture like cutting your whole family out of your will or something. Uh, you can't completely. I mean, you I mean, you can you you can do that. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, there actually are more. There are I, I I'm not remembering wills very well, but I mean there are there are certain instances in which I, I think the court will sort of overturn that or over you know where where they will they will um, kind of scrutinize and undermine the will of the testator where they think it's sort of inappropriate or immoral. I mean it does happen. There there are, there there are times where the where the probate court decides it's actually totally wrong to do what the testator wanted to do or uh-huh. and you can't and like one of them is like you know it is it you have to be very specific about cutting your children out it, it you have to do it the right way or 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 the court won't do that they won't cut a child out you know there's you can't cut your spouse out you know, for example, I mean, there are these kinds of like different at different different angles and in different ways. The court is willing to undermine a testator's will. You can't you can't cut your spouse out, period. And I mean, is that true? Not completely. Yeah, not. Re- yeah, not completely. Huh. Yeah. No, they, they're entitled to um like by law, they're entitled to a share. There's like a default share that they're entitled to. Huh. Well, that, and that's true in every jurisdiction. It doesn't I, maybe the the size of the share varies state by state, but that's true in in. That's true. State. Yeah, that's oh. true. Well, that's true. Go. I mean, there are there are plenty of instances in which the court has decided for one reason or another in in wills law that they 
don't want the testator, you know, where the testator's uh, will, even though it's clear, is like should not be followed. Um, I don't know if this would really, I mean, this would be really one of them, but I mean, so I mean, yeah, I don't know. Why the court got to be a, a testator hater like that? Yeah, no, it's true. It's kind of it's kind of a strange tension, right? That they're the the way like the way they are, <laughs> the way they will and will not question and undermine the will of the testator. Yeah, which so much of which is supposed to be the driving force of all that wills law and making sure it's like executed properly and that you know so we don't you know trying to eliminate like evidentiary concerns about you know what the dead person really wanted since they're dead and we can't ask them. Right. Um, there is, there is these two kind of opposing forces, I think in Will's law as to, you know, when there, there are certain instances in which we do want to undermine their will. Um, why do, but I think it's an interesting question you pose about why do we, why do we care about the testator's will? Why do we care about honoring their wishes when they're dead? Um, it seems, senti- very it seems sentimental, doesn't it? Right. Like, you know, I, I I suppose like I I I mean I'm sounding very dangerously like a socialist here, but but uh, you know I don't know I don't think their their property should be taken over by the state during their their life. But like why why you know especially in Gossip Girl, a show that's concerned with with the idea of you know of of family as being something that ought to be perpetuated and that you ought to be loyal to. Um, you know, I it, it just seems it sticks out to me. It sticks out like a sore thumb a little bit that that uh, uh, that you can sort of go against the family in death so egregiously like this. Right, right. I, yeah, no. Sure. I mean, I don't know. Is it codified? Do we know if it's codified anywhere in law? What the what the basis of this this? Um, I mean, it, whether there's a moral basis to this kind of. Uh, 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 you know, to this sort of uh, observe the will of the testator, uh, <laughs> or as I say, don't be a testator hater. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, right. Yeah, this is a this is a, a sort of thing that's written down somewhere. You know, I think I unfortunately am not prepared to answer that. I think didn't know that there was a didn't know that there was a an exam on the thing. I know that it's not your. You know, I know that you're involved in things legal, and it's not really your uh, your uh, area. No, I'm trying to. I'm just trying to recall. Like I, you just have to understand. I have very poor memory. I, it's like. Law school and in college are a big vague of like ideas that are sort of taken on a life of their own in some sort of short form. Um, yeah, no, I you know I don't know why we we yeah I don't know why we've chosen to respect the will of dead people and why we care about doing that. You know, and why we don't just sort of I mean obviously every state has a like to put it another way, every state has a sort of default set of rules in the event that you do not leave a will. Right. I don't know why we don't just choose to sort of have like fixed rigid rules to allow for the distribution of property and to let it be. I guess in the same way that, I mean, we try to, you know, we, I guess there's a sort of, I don't know, it's the same reasons we allow contracts, you know, it's sort of like. It, it, there's this kind of like you know it's the desire to allow people to 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 contract except you I guess you contract with yourself it's just 
allowing people to to determine these terms and to have them be enforceable and respected. Uh-huh. Um, I don't. I don't really know if there's a really better answer than that. I, I'm sure I'm going to think of it later, uh-huh. and then I'll feel very silly. But I, it just in general, I think I don't know. It's the same. I think it's like a very similar desire, and like in some ways, a lot of the laws, you know, very very different from contract. But you know, I think there's a lot of that that same sort of motivation is to be able to allow people to to sort of plan the terms of their life or death and you know, to, to honor that intention and that, that those desires, I don't know why we want to do that even when they're dead, but I don't know. I don't have a great answer for that. I'm going to have to think about that, Matt. You really have, you really have provoked me. And then about the social, um, I guess the procedural order and the, this whole idea of having to to both being the natural family and having to prove to be part of the family. It's interesting you say that because I feel like the the two characters, on the one hand, Lola has sort of created that dynamic for herself, right? You know, she keeps talking about not having chosen or decided whether she wants to be a part of the family. And I think they, and like you said, they really, they play those two aspects off of her constantly. Serena is constantly appealing to her natural you know, you're that she's part of the family naturally. Right. That she's related to them by blood, um, and it's just kind. Of, but it's always like I guess she's always imploring them because you are natural. You are related to us. You should join the social. You know, you should make these social steps uh-huh. to be socially a part of the family. But they do kind of appeal to her on both ways and sort of con- you know on both fronts in a very contradictory manner. Right. Um. Yeah, no, I think we when you know when I was watching it too, it is it's a frustrating plot line because, like you said too, the, it, the Ivy thing they've shut off the idea they're they've kind of shut off like a legitimate legal contest, right? Of of the inheritance and you know Ivy's inheritance, except for this bribery thing, whatever. Which, um, but you know they they have they kind of essentially done that. I I just feel it's kind of static of Lily to. Is there just like in denial? I mean, I don't know. It's kind of like it's kind of like denying people an improv or something. There's just something sort of static about them sort of not accepting that legally this had happened. And I guess you're right. They 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 find it unjust, you're and right. they they're in denial and they they can't deal with it. But I, I think it will get old if they don't sort of accept that she has like legitimately inherited all of this. Well, yeah, exactly. That if they continue to deny if they continue to deny the premise. I mean, it's okay to fight against the premise, but like you have to acknowledge that that uh, you have to acknowledge at least that this has happened and that it like at least on a certain level on the level of legality, it all seems to to uh, it all seems to be on the up and up. I mean, you know what I mean? Unless, I don't know, unless it was forged or something like that, you know. But I don't, I don't think that that's where they're headed. At least it doesn't seem to be that they're planting the seeds of that. No, I, I don't think they are. Um, and I don't mind them sort of staying in this place. I don't need to see them. You know, I, I guess I don't sympathize so much with them that I, I feel some sort of need to have justice served by having them... You know, by having Ivy supplanted and they're back in their Upper East Side abode. You don't. You don't mind. Uh, uh, you don't mind Lily out in the wilds of Brooklyn, out in the wilds. <laughs> of 
something like that. No, I think it'll be great when they're like domestic tension. You, you know, have to where you have to take the you have to take the lighter, the long you know the long handled. Uh, uh, <laughs> right and light the right. lighter, right and light the uh, yeah light light the, the gas mat yeah the gas yeah. burner. By the way, that stove is not a ghetto stove. That's like uh, that's an industrial looking like you know like Viking stove. yeah exactly Viking range or something like that. Well, that was the kind of that's the kind of guy Rufus was. He can afford the Viking stove, but then he could for some reason afford to have it repaired or like <laughs> have the switches work or you know, I don't know. Um yeah, I mean that I know that detail was a little much. That detail was a little much. Yes. I just I, I mean like and you know, it's clear that, that Lily is like look at it, Lily is like mad about uh, you know, being forced to live in such squalor. You know, I mean, you and I would be would be like uh, the delighted, yeah, delighted, <laughs> delighted, delighted. Live in house. Um, yeah, whatever, like uh, whatever eight or nine million dollars that apartment must cost, right? Right, God, Especially such a paltry sum. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, it's clear that Lily is unhappy. I wonder if Rufus is going to be unhappy, too, kind of being a, tr- a, a trophy husband, or if this will be Rufus Ascendant, you know what I mean? And, like, the the art gallery or, you know, Hudson Hawk will be the... Uh that's the name of his band, right? I believe so. Yeah. Right, will yeah. be, we'll become the main source of income for this for this family. I mean, Lily has uh, Lily has tons of money, right? Like she's yeah, she has her own income. Money. Yeah, no, or, uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm she has uh, capital anyway. Like she had right. you know, from her. Uh, marriages and the company marriages, yeah, especially from uh from her marriage to bart bass yeah and then i guess from oh right because she did have and the she, job she, she was working for bass she industries. was she was working for bass industries in yeah. some capacity yeah. right i think so yeah as as a fixer or as a uh you know <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> token aristocrat or something um so uh yeah i mean like this i i think that this this whole like we're banished to brooklyn um this whole thing is a little is being a little overdone because you know it's not like I mean it's not like Lily is in in the poorhouse she's just gone from the uh, the ranks of the uh, unimaginably wealthy who inherit another you know unimaginable chunk of capital to, to merely being unimaginably wealthy. Right, right, and you know, but you know, it's not overdone in that sense. In that, I, I mean, I, I'm liking it. I think that it should be a, a. I would like it to blow out into a horrible, a horrible tension. Is like, right, Rufus is ascendant, and there's this deterioration in the relationship, and they have to really rethink things. And he sees her being petty in Brooklyn, and it's. I just, I think it would be so, so fun, but um, I guess that makes me weird. But I think it'd be so <laughs> much fun to see that and. You know, and I, I and I do. I mean, considering how Upper East Side centric they are, um, I think I read a recap where it's like, why can't Ivy buy anything? You know, obtain the services of people outside of the Upper East Side. I yeah. mean, it is the social death is like way. It's plausible. This is like way too much for all of them. You know, for for them to be outside of you know those like five or ten blocks, right? That are probably acceptably the Upper East Side sure. for them. To them, it's just yeah, like yeah. yeah, it's just way too much. It, it is a social death. It's the rest of New York is like irrelevant in some way. Um, 
Which is weird, but I mean, yeah, it's. I, I do feel like her being really petty is sort of like plausible and in keeping with the way she is, and I would love to see it continue. Um, but yeah, no, I, I do think there. I, I do think it is interesting how. Um, and I'm going back to Lola. Lola having to join the family. I guess. I mean, I guess what she has joined the family now. She took the step. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It's like a continual trial where she keeps having to sort of, you know, make those social choices to to show that she is a part of the family. I'm trying to think what is the what is the the geography that you think they would be that they would really uh, they would really accept. Right. Like it probably centers on like Park Avenue. Right. From right. From maybe yeah. like what from like it can't be east of Lexington Avenue, I think. I think this is as far east as it is. As, uh, okay, as you can go. Well, no, Park right? is, Oh, it uh, can't be east of Lexington. Okay, you can't go all the right? way to 3rd. Okay. Right, you so, can't go to 3rd, right. So I think 3rd is too far. It's between the Park and Lex. Uh, from what? From uh, 68th Street through 86th Street or something like that? I would go a little lower. I mean, I think, I think you can start. I think once you're in the 60s, maybe... Yeah, but like not this, as not as low as right. Remember, Blair says I hate Murray Hill. Right, right. I so, mean, but so like 59th Street and up. I think. I mean, maybe a little higher than 59th, only because there's, but 50. But yeah, I think you have to go that low to capture some very important businesses. Okay. So, yeah, so I maybe guess, 59th I, to I think yeah I think 86. As high as 86th. Yeah, I think that would work. Though maybe they're really, really, we're talking the seventies, maybe or not even. We may be just talking about like the sixties. I don't, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I, I think I, I imagine them all living sort of in that, in like, right on that trajectory from Park to Lex in the sixties and seventies. That's where I imagine yeah. everyone being. Well, and they they live the the main locations seem to be on on the avenues, right? That that uh, you don't really see. It's not like Sex in the City. Like Sex in the City is a is a uh, is a show of the the streets between the avenues, you know. Whereas right. Gossip Girl seems to be a show where all the establishing shots are up on these big tall buildings uh, on the avenues, and you don't really venture uh, you don't really venture that much onto the streets. No, that's true. In fact, I really, I can't, I'm, I don't know what avenue they live on. Right. In that establishing shot. Yeah. Right, because they, they live in a very large building, um, which is kind of odd. Yeah. I mean, really, really, they probably all should be living in townhouses. Yeah. Should, on the, right? They? Yeah, I, I agree with you. They really should be. I don't think they should be living. That kind of big, large building is really more for, like, Wall Street bankers or something. I think you know it's mm. they live in. in it, it doesn't seem to be for the sort of established money that they're all supposed to represent. At yeah, least, sort of, yeah, sort of aristocracy that they. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, oh, uh, if you look on uh, if you look on the uh, New York Magazine uh, Vulture blog at vulture dot com, you can find the definitive Gossip Girl location map. Which I've just found through a little a little googling. So you, oh, nice. You can yeah, you can find them. And though the shows the shows locations are clustered, uh, they are all around um, 
but they are sort of clustered in the in the the residential locations are clustered in the area that uh, that we are talking about, um, and then and then there's the cluster of NYU locations and the the cluster of Brooklyn locations, which are like. Uh, Oh, I I don't even know, like Dumbo. Right, uh, right. Rufus is Loftus and Dumbo, although it's supposed to be in Williamsburg, I think, right? That's the that's the central Brooklyn paradox of the Rufus residence. Right, absolutely. Yeah, no, they're right, but they're they're I, they're supposed to be in Williamsburg. Oh, right. The uh, the Humphrey Loft. This map has just told me is uh, four fifty five Water Street in. Uh, 455 Water Street, which is, uh, you know, in Dumbo. Actually, yeah. right on the, you know, you can sort of see the Brooklyn Naval Yard from uh, from there. Okay. Well, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. A neighborhood that Google Maps tells me is uh, is called Vinegar Hill. Right. Ah. Well, that's, that's kind of, that's like a up-and-coming I guess it's up and came. I don't know. I guess it up and came, but at some point in my life, I considered it up and coming. I'm sure it up and came. I think there's a like organic restaurant there called Vinegar Hill. So there you go. Nice. Um, well, uh, I think maybe we leave the uh, the conversation there for this episode. Yeah. So um, if you want to uh, join the conversation, you can email us at TFT Podcast. You can call or text 20 fat jog one That's 203-285-6401. Uh, we're on Twitter at TFT Podcast. And we uh, also have a Facebook page, um, which nothing ever happens on. Uh, but uh, we have it. So you should like it because we like you. Um, and we really like Ryan Sheely. Come home soon and come home safe, Ryan. Uh, safe travels. Uh, we have conversations in the show notes on uh, conversations and comments on the show notes of these episodes. And it remains uh, for me uh, only to thank Cognac. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I would love to be back and uh, have uh, greater thoughts on other Gossip Girl episodes. I think particularly, it'd be, you know, let me just say this as a parting thought. I think okay. this is a little bit of a treading water episode. Um, they have those, I, I, yeah. They have those. I, I would like to really, let's see where this picks up, but I'm glad we were able to discuss it nonetheless. And I think, see, the, hopefully this is a, the, the, blast, the seed for something totally awesome that Gossip Girl will then completely abandon. So Let's hope. Let's hope. <laughs> so uh, thank you. Thank you again for having me. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome anytime to discuss the Hunger Games, to discuss adolescence as a sociological construct, to discuss the tension between the symbolic and the natural orders, but most of all, to discuss these, these fucking, fucking teenagers. teenagers. <laughs>